to be here. Uh, very excited to travel also with my wife. Uh, when our kids were younger, it didn't happen as often, but as our kids are growing and just actually we became empty nesters uh, a few weeks ago, uh, she's able to come with me more often and we were honored to be on the coast and enjoying that. And um, the sun is always out, you just can't always see it. So <clears throat> we knew it was there somewhere, but we just appreciated being out here. I have, very encouraging message for you, and I promise the next four hours are going to fly right by. <laughs> no, it's actually going to go really fast. We're going to put a lot of exciting information into a very short period of time focused on the authority of God's Word that trusted from cover to cover. You know, most people around the world don't think very highly of the Bible, that, you know, it's just an antiquated religious book and filled with errors and contradictions, and there's missing pieces, and on and on. We're going to be talking about that in more detail this evening, uh, but you're going to see this morning that there's a lot to the Bible, and the more we look at science, the more it backs up what the Bible's been saying all along. Since most of you don't know me from a hole in the ground, I'm going to go over my background really quick. That's me, and that's a hole in the ground, so <laughs> there are a few differences. That's just really just a warning about my really, really dry sense of humor, um, I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. <clears throat> and then I went to public schools all the way through high school. When I graduated, I went to a Christian college, uh, John Brown University in Arkansas, to study mechanical engineering. I got a degree there, but I became more interested in physics, and so I transferred and went back to Wisconsin, where I live. Went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit, because I went from a relatively small Christian college where my engineering professors actually opened up every class in prayer to a large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. They were all evolutionists, some of them were atheists, and they were basically telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me feel very uncomfortable to be surrounded by these PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, but I realized for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I didn't know why. I, I couldn't defend my beliefs. How did I really know that God existed? How did I know the creation account was scientifically valid? That was huge, studying physics. How did I know there was a worldwide flood? How did I know Jesus was the Son of God? How did I know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I was raised to believe every single one of those things, and I, I did believe them, kind of naively. Just thought, yeah, sure, no problem. But I couldn't defend it. So God put it on my heart at that point in my life to start looking into these things. So I have been researching and lecturing now for 33 years on these topics. About 12 years ago, I founded the Creation Education Center, which we changed the name to the Starting Point Project. It's a whole other talk. I won't go into those details right now. But I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. It's a consortium of some of the world's leading scientists who are also Christians. The founding member is Dr. John Sanford. He's from Cornell University. He invented something called the gene gun. It searched genes into the DNA. He's worldwide famous for that. Scientists all over use this gene gun. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Just off the charts brilliant. So I get to hang around these guys and pick their brains and put the information into a level that normal people like you and I can can understand. And as smart as these guys are, and they are really, really smart, if they were here this morning, they would be the first to admit out of all four board members, I am the tallest. <laughs> um, that's probably all I can say there. 
but uh, this is my family. Again, Amy's up front here. She's traveling with me. We've been married 26 years. Our son, Taylor, and our daughter, Tori, got married this summer, but not to each other, which is good. <laughs> we didn't mess them up too bad. Um, our son, Taylor, on, the, on that side, and your, your left, uh, got married in May to Kayla, and our daughter, Tori, got married to Matt about a month ago. We're just really excited for them because we, we really love their spouses and they're very committed to, to God and his word. We're excited to see what God has planned for their futures. But a little bit about the mission and passion behind the ministry of the Starting Point Project. It's somewhat based on this, that we have a huge problem today. Two-thirds or more, probably more, of Christian youth end up walking away from their faith before they leave college. And that should be very alarming to everyone here this morning. How in the world does that happen? There are a number of factors, but one of the biggest factors is that they are handed a set of beliefs without conviction. It's kind of like me. I was taught all the right things. I just had no idea why they were the right things. And then they go off to college and they run into professors who give them all these great-sounding reasons as to why the whole thing isn't true. There's no way there's a God. Look at all the evil in the world today. If he really existed, he wouldn't allow all that. And the creation account, I mean, come on. Nobody believes that anymore. Science has thoroughly disproven that years ago. And the flood, yeah, right. Where did all that water come from? Where did all that water go? How did Noah get all those animals on that ark? And Jesus, he's not the son of God, just another religious nut out there. And the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. There's missing, missing portions and extra stuff that got shoved in there. And there's got all these different versions out there and on and on and on. And our kids are not prepared for those challenges. And they don't have good responses. And many of them end up then walking away from their faith. Now, as I travel around, occasionally I'll see if there's a, a Christian school in the area, and I was actually originally going to try to pop into one of the schools here, but we weren't able to stay long enough to do that. Um, but I'll often just pop in to give some talks. In this particular example, I was in a Christian school that went from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I was in there talking to the eighth graders who were getting ready to uh, graduate and go on to high school. Every single student in this class was raised in this school, so they had a good Christian education. Every single student in this class, when they graduated, they were going to be going to a public high school because where they were living, they didn't have good options for Christian schools. One was going to be homeschool, but their, the other students were all going to the public high school. So they brought me in there to try to help them with this major transition in their life, and I asked them a lot of questions, one of which was, how many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Every hand went up, and that's great. It's just not too surprising at a Christian school, if nothing else, out of peer pressure. They're going to raise their hands. Then I asked another question. How many of you can tell me how do you know the Bible's the inspired word of God? And then it got really quiet. And a few hands went up, and these are the responses that I got. Because it says it is. Because I believe it is. Because it was written by God, and because that's what I've been taught. You can see very quickly, these are not reasons. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but very likely many of you here this morning would give a similar response. Well, I, I just know it is. I feel it. I, it says it is. We're going to talk about that particular question in a lot more detail this evening. But it's very easy from this position to just walk away. Well, I believe it because I believe it. I believe it because it's, it's, it's what someone taught me. Again, not good reasons. We need to go further than that. If we don't go any further than that, we, we really do have a blind faith. And there's no reason anyone else should believe it. You can ask yourself, how will you or your children or your grandchildren respond to questions like these? God created the universe. Who created God? 
And isn't evolution science and creation just religion? And why do so many scientists believe in evolution? Most of them do. Hasn't science disproved the Bible? Can you really trust a Genesis creation account? Where did all that water go after the flood? That's a good one. Is there life in outer space? What about all the apemen? You go to the museums, they've got real bones. How are you going to argue with that? Was there really an ice age? Did God really create everything in six days? I mean, that sounds crazy. And where did all the races come from? you got Adam and Eve. How do we get all these races? It's been stated that the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. So if you're struggling with questions like these or others, how stable are you going to be in your faith? How eager will you be to share it with someone else? How well positioned will you be to mentor your own children or grandchildren? Or are you going to start wondering, am I just fooling myself with all this Bible stuff? I mean, science keeps disproving it. Maybe I just need to have stronger faith. I'll just grip my teeth harder and believe it no matter what. Or bury your head deeper in the sand and ignore all the science, which many people do. And you can do that for a while. It works. But eventually, you just can't, it doesn't work anymore. You give up. It's like, you know, forget this and walk away from your faith. Here's an interesting quote from Dr. Richard Rorty from the University of Virginia. If you're a little sleepy this morning, this will probably wake you up. This is what he said. Secular professors in the universities ought to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists leave college with views more like our own. Students are fortunate to find themselves under the benevolence of people like me and have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents. We're going to go right on trying to discredit you parents in the eyes of your children trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your view seem silly rather than discussable. And this is happening at state universities all across the country, and even in many public high schools. Direct attacks against Christianity. Most of our kids are not prepared for that. And they run into quotes like this from Dr. Ernst Meyer. He was one of the world's leading evolutionists, brilliant scientist. This is what he said. No educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. Very dogmatic statement from a very intelligent scientist. I wouldn't argue with that. The guy was brilliant. But the Bible says there's a big difference between intelligence and wisdom. The Bible says a fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and a lot of these scientists, they don't fear God. Many of them don't even believe in God, like Professor Richard Dawkins. He's arguably the world's leading atheist. Wrote the book, The God Delusion. Here's one of his quotes from another source. It says, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. And they're a very dogmatic statement from a very intelligent scientist. So how would you, or your children, or grandchildren, respond sitting in a class where the teacher or professor makes a statement like that? I guarantee if they raise their hand and say, yeah, I don't really believe in all this evolution stuff, they're instantly broadcasting to everyone around them. I'm one of these ignorant people. I don't know anything about science. I just believe the Bible. <laughs> Who's going to want to respond that way? I didn't when I was in grade school, junior high, high school, college. I was very shy and I really didn't know why I believed what I believed. So it's just very easy just to kind of walk away from the whole thing. But we as Christians, we need to view everything around us through what we call biblical glasses. Glasses help us see things correctly. What this means is, what does God's Word tell us about God's world? 
whether it's astronomy, biology, geology, anthropology, the Ice Age, flood, dinosaurs, whatever it is, what did God tell us about those things? But the idea of evolution implies that the Bible does not represent real history. You can't trust it. Well, that's a big problem for us as Christians if we can't trust the history that's in the Bible. In fact, it taints how we look at things. Consider these things here. The American Civil War, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, the fall of the Roman Empire, and World War II. What are those? Well, we call those historical events. Where do we learn about them? Well, typically in the public school system, state universities. Okay, what about these? Jonah and the whale, parting the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, Adam and Eve. Well, th those are Bible stories. Where do we learn about those? In church, Sunday school, whatever. Sometimes the teachers will have the little flannel graphs and the kids can come up and put the animals in the ark. It's kind of fun for them. One thing that we've noticed about kids is if we feed them it, at least every other day, that's what my wife and I do to save money, <laughs> um, they eventually grow up and they start thinking for themselves. And the teachers will say, there's no way there is a flood. How in the world did Noah get millions of species of animals on that ark? Now, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what the teachers and professors will think it says. And the students will think, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. There's no way you could fit all those animals on that ark. And the teacher or professor will continue. And even if there was a flood, where did all that water come from to flood the entire planet? Can anyone here tell me how much water would be required to flood the entire earth? No, I didn't think so. And even if the earth was flooded, where did all that water go? I'm looking around, I don't see it. Students will say, yeah, I didn't really thought about that either. You know, me. I know there wasn't an actual flood. It's just a story in the Bible to teach us about I don't know, boats, animals, water, something. It's a cool story. You gotta, everyone loves a story. You gotta love it, even if it didn't happen. Because, I mean, Jesus told stories, right? So that didn't really happen. So you, you throw that out. And you start throwing other things out. And if you're gonna throw anything out, you're certainly gonna throw creation in six days out. I mean, come on. Again, nobody believes that. I mean, science has done away with that a long time ago. The dark ages, right? So you throw that out too. What's interesting is pretty much every major doctrine we believe as Christians is founded in the book of Genesis. For example, we have the doctrine of, of sin. What, what is sin? Well, God created Adam and Eve in that garden. It's perfect. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That's what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God. It's actually defined in the book of Genesis. Then we have death. There's death all around us. Where did that come from? Well, God created Adam and Eve in that garden. It's perfect. But they sinned and disobeyed God. And their actions brought death and a curse into God's perfect creation. The origin of death goes back to Genesis. And we have marriage, one man, one woman for life. That is highly controversial all around the world, even in many churches. Where'd that come from? Well, God created Adam and Eve in the garden. He said it's going to be one man, one woman for life. It goes back to Genesis. And we have clothing. And notice you're all wearing clothes this morning. That's good. Um, this is kind of weird. Do you ever wonder why you put clothes on? I mean, sometimes it's a little bit cool out, you want to be warmer. But when it's perfectly nice out, why put clothes on? Because God created Adam and Eve in that garden. It was perfect, but they sinned, disobeyed God, brought death and curse into God's perfect creation, and clothing was just a temporary covering for their sin. It goes back to Genesis. Then we have work. Why do we work? Because God created Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, Adam, I want you to till the ground, work the earth. It got a lot harder for him after he sinned, but it was actually ordained by God right from the beginning. Then we have Jesus. Jesus is referred to in the Bible as being the last Adam. 
If the first Adam wasn't real, what does that say about the last Adam? And then most importantly, the gospel message. What is the gospel message? That Jesus Christ came, he died on a cross and rose again the third day. Why? Why did he do that? Because God created Adam and Eve in that garden. It was perfect, but they sinned, disobeyed God, brought death and a curse into his perfect creation, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is the only permanent solution for that problem. The gospel message that we like to focus on is actually rooted in the book of Genesis. If we have problems with Genesis, never really happened, errors, contradictions, not literal, it's all messed up, we have problems with pretty much everything we believe as Christians. In fact, if Genesis is not literal history with a literal very good creation and a literal Adam and Eve, then Sid did not literally enter the world through their actions, and you and I don't literally need to be saved. I hope you can start to see that this Genesis stuff is foundational to everything. It's not some side topic that some historians are into or science geeks or whatever. No, it's, it's fundamental and foundational to everything we believe as Christians for everyone. We need to understand this much better. Here's another quote from another atheist. I think this quote is very disturbing, but I also think it's very logical. And this is what he said. Christianity has fought, still fights, and will continue to fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve in the original sin. In the rubble, you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. I would agree with that. If evolution is true, as they're teaching it in the school systems, then Christianity is not true. If evolution is true, there wasn't an original perfect creation with an Adam and Eve in some nice garden who kicked God off and got kicked out, and God says, oh, great, I've got to send my son to die for their sins. That did not happen if evolution is true. Now, I know many religious people and many Christians put the two together. Well, God used evolution. Case closed, end of story. God's all powerful, he can do whatever he wants, right? On the surface, that sounds like a great solution. And I know many Christians who have that belief. There's got to be people here this morning, and that's just kind of your thought. You resolve the conflict. And everyone that I meet who believes that, they're very sincere because it seems like it solves a potential problem, but it actually doesn't. What you end up doing is taking a very poor scientific idea, evolution, which we'll talk about, and you put it into the Bible, and now you do have errors and contradictions and problems in, in Scripture. When you put the two together, they really don't go together. I have another, a number of talks where I go into lots of details. We'll just be scratching the surface here this morning as to why that doesn't work. But Psalm 8, 118.8 says, It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. And 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God, with God. Meaning the most brilliant scientists we have, as smart as they are, they still know nothing compared to God. We need to trust God for what he's told us. And we can, the more we look at science, the more it backs up what God's been telling us all along. And again, we'll get into some of that here and more this evening. Since we're talking about creation and evolution here, we need to define this word evolution because it's used in so many different ways. They will talk about the evolution of the telephone, how it's changed over the years. And it has changed, changed quite a bit. And they'll call that evolution. I don't have a problem with that. If they want to call that evolution, that's fine. But it's not what I'm referring to this morning, and it's not what they're teaching in the school system. I'm also not referring to different breeds of dogs. There are about 250 breeds of dogs or so on the planet today. 
I'm also not referring to different types of cats that we have on the planet. I'm also not referring to different beaks on finches that Darwin got very excited about. These are facts of science. Nobody denies them. But those things have nothing to do with evolution as being taught in the school systems and state universities. This is what's taught, and this is what I'm referring to by evolution, that supposedly 3.8 billion years ago, dead chemicals came together to form a living cell which could copy itself. And when it copied itself, it turned itself into every other life form on this planet over millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years through natural processes. This is actually a story, and I'm not saying that to be sarcastic or condescending. It's a story because they weren't there to see it, so they're telling the story of what they believe happened a long, long time ago. We also call this molecules-to-man evolution. And I highly recommend you use this phrase. If you don't, if you just tell someone you don't believe in evolution, they're going to look at you like you are crazy. Because they're going to say, of course evolution's a fact. We see change all the time. What did they just do? They did something that's technically called equivocation, where you set two things equal that aren't. Evolution and change. Evolution would certainly involve change, but it's not just any kind of change. It's a special kind of change that makes things more and more complex and adds new genetic information all along the way. We don't see those changes. So change is true. You don't reject change, but you don't see the kinds of change that would be required by evolution. And some of my other talks, I go into a lot of detail on that. So you might want to tell someone you don't really buy into the whole idea of molecules to man evolution. Dead chemicals became alive, and then that one cell just copied itself, and it just got better and better and better over millions of years and formed people and everything in between. This next segment's pretty short, and it's really, really, really important, really, really powerful. This is going to help remove some of the intimidation with the whole creation-evolution controversy. A lot of people don't want to get into a debate on this because they feel like they don't have a science background and they can't even discuss it. The other person's just going to blow them out of the water. I, I understand you know, why they might feel that way. This is going to simplify things quite a bit, and here's the point I'm going to make. There are two types of science. You know, observational science and historical science. Observational science deals with things that we actually do in a laboratory. We make cell phones, computers, we cure diseases. It's great stuff. Creationists and evolutionists are not debating operational science. But too often, the evolutionists are skeptical, say, well, you, creation, you Christians, you creationists, you guys reject science. You just believe the Bible. Well, that's not true at all. In fact, most major areas of science were founded by a Bible-believing Christian. Science owes its origins to Christianity. We'll talk about that in more detail tonight. So if you say you don't believe in evolution, that doesn't mean you reject cell phone technology. It has nothing to do with that. That's observational science. But the other type of science is called historical science. And this deals with events that happened in the unobserved past, like a Big Bang. They say it happened 13.8 billion years ago. You know what? No one is around to see it happen. Can't reproduce it in a laboratory, and you can't test it directly. But the same thing goes for the six-day creation account. None of us saw that happen. We certainly can't reproduce that in a laboratory. We can't test it directly because it happened in the past once. So both of these views, Big Bang and evolution or six-day creation, they fall into the category of what's known as historical science. Now, there's actually nothing wrong with historical science. It's different. 
involves a lot of guesses and assumptions as to what happened a long time ago when we weren't around to see it. And different scientists have different guesses and assumptions as to what they thought happened a long time ago. And you've heard it stated that the facts speak for themselves. They don't. Every fact you have ever heard or ever will hear has to be interpreted to give it any kind of meaning. And the way you interpret facts is by using what you already believe. Someone shows you some new facts and you look at them and say, oh, this is what I think about that. You have to interpret it using what you already believe. In fact, all scientists have the same facts. It's not like creationists, we've got our facts, and evolutionists have their facts, and we're weighing them, throwing them back and forth. No, we're all living on the same planet. We're looking at the same dirt, same DNA. The facts are the same. But they're being interpreted differently, not based on the facts. They're being interpreted differently based on what these scientists believe to begin with. As an example, it is an absolute fact that there are many layers in the Grand Canyon. It's a fact. You can go there today and see them. And evolutionists would look at those facts, at those layers, through a worldview or a prism or whatever you want to call it, a starting point of man's wisdom, all the wisdom man has built up over the years. They would use that to then look at these facts and say, wow, that would take millions and millions of years to form all those layers. Whereas a Christian or a creationist could look at the same layers through a filter of God's word and say, you know what? That's what I would expect to see. Because the Bible says there was a worldwide flood, Genesis chapter 6 through 8. If there was a worldwide flood, what, what would we expect to see? We would expect to be, see sedimentary layers laid down by water, catastrophically, all over the planet, probably filled with fossils because things that were living would have gotten buried. Guess what? That's what we see. We see sedimentary layers laid down all over the planet, filled with billions and billions of fossils. Looking at the same facts, coming up with two totally different interpretations, not based on the facts, based on what they believe to begin with. I mentioned you know, Grand Canyon. The slide is supposed to stay up there longer. I forgot to fix it. But this was my son when we went on the trip, going all the way down to the Grand Canyon, heading there, or down to the river, had not done that before. We lead tours, which we'll talk about in a second. But we, in February, along with John and others from the church here, hiked all the way down, six hours down, about six hours back up. Um, took a, a lot of energy. It was a lot of fun. It was just kind of life-changing. It was just phenomenal. Uh, chance of a lifetime to do that. So we went down through all those layers and then and back up. A lot of fun. In addition to that, I also lead tours. And our tours, what we do, our next one we have scheduled for May 28th through the 31st, we spend one day walking along the rim of the Grand Canyon, looking one mile down to the Colorado River. <laughs> I'm actually afraid of heights, but I figured that won't be an issue for me because the canyon's not high. It's just really deep. <laughs> and then <laughs> the next day, we're actually on the river, and we go around this famous horseshoe bend, looking up. And all along the way, we give scientific lectures for evidences of the authority of God's Word, that it's actual history. There really was a worldwide flood, and we show out all the scientific evidence for it. You can see it for yourself. You don't even have to trust us. It's so obvious. It's so apparent as we point these things out. I just, I'll throw one extra thing out. Don't tell the first service because I didn't throw this one in there. When you're standing on the rim, the south, we go to the south rim. When you're standing there, looking down one mile, there's a lot of dirt missing. 900 cubic miles of sediment gone. Colorado River didn't carve that out. It's impossible. Even if it had, at the end of the river, you'd see this massive delta. All the sediment having been carried out, boom, there it is. It's not there. Because the river didn't carve it out. It's physically impossible anyway. But what people don't know is when you're standing on the rim, looking down, 900 cubic miles of sediment gone, 
there used to be another mile and a half of sediments above that point, gone. How do we know that? Because those layers still exist to the north of the canyon. It's called the Grand Staircase. But they've been washed out by the canyon. The Colorado River didn't wipe out a mile and a half of sediments above the canyon. It took something on a global scale, massive sheet erosion. There's so much detail to it. Wiping all that out, it backs up what the Bible's been telling us all along about a global flood. And there's so many other evidences. So we share things like that. Uh, it's a really simple family trip. You're literally walking on a flat, paved path. You're not rock climbing and repelling and just out of breath. Flat, paved path. And then we take a bus to get down to the river. And then we're on the river in these rafts, smooth sailing. It's not whitewater rafting. You're falling out of the raft. You don't get wet or anything. We stay in nice hotels. So if you're interested, we have a flyer out at the table. We also have a special. Everyone who signs up from a church, the pastor gets $50 off. So if 20 people signed up, that's $1,000 off for the pastor. That's actually more than the cost of the trip. So pastor can quit his day job and just do tours with us. <laughs> but we want pastors to be able to go with their congregation because it's such an encouraging time to talk about God's word. And this isn't something you have to dismiss, a silly flood story. No, it actually happened, and now we're looking at the best evidence in the world. Grand Canyon is the best place on the planet to see evidence for the worldwide flood. So we'll take you through that. We were going to use this flyer here to promote the trip, but... That might frighten people away. It's actually a really very, very simple trip to go on. Also, I stayed a little later with my sister and brother-in-law last year. We went to the top of Horseshoe Bend, and I got some video footage with my camera. I was pretty proud of myself because I am afraid of heights, and that's like 1,200 feet up there at that point. Um, but it's just beautiful. So you just get a lot of beauty that you're looking at, and then all the scientific stuff along with the, the biblical teaching as well. If you're interested... Again, take a flyer off our table or get a hold of us soon because sometimes the, the buses fill up really fast. Uh, we're also doing a Mount St. Helens tour next year for the first time. We have the dates. We don't have the other details yet. Uh, we're going to go up to Mount St. Helens. We've got some of the leading scientists in the world who've done leading uh, research on the area, That's Dr. Steve Austin and others. So I'll be giving some talks, Steve Austin and others. Lots of lectures. You'll be able to do some hiking, optional hiking if you don't want to go hiking, but We'll be doing an awful lot during these days. If you're interested, we don't have an official sign-up yet because we don't have all the details, but if you want to get be part of the trip before it fills up, contact our ministry, have my assistant, put your name on a list. You're not committing to anything. You don't have to pay any money you know, to get your name on there. Just put your name on the list so when it does open up, you'll be given an opportunity before others to, to be part of that trip. So back to our talk. Facts again. Same facts. We talked about the layers in the earth. Now we're going to look at facts that there are similarities similarities between ape and human skeletons. And evolutionists would look at these bones and say, see, that's proof, if not strong evidence, that we're related to apes, that we've evolved from an ape-like creature because of the similarities. Well, a Christian or creationist can look at the same bones and say, you know what, that's what I would expect to see. Because they're designed by the same designer, living on the same planet, eating similar foods. There's got to be some similarities there, and that's what we see. Once again, same facts, two totally different interpretations. Not based on the facts, based on what they believe to begin with. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Rudyard Kipling? He's a great children's author, wrote a number of books, like how the leopard got its spots and how the uh, camel got its hump. They call these just-so stories. Just so happened that this is how those spots got onto that leopard. They're very imaginative, creative, fun stories for children. Very entertaining. But we don't want to see just-so stories in science. But too often, that's exactly what we see. Here's a quote from Geo Times. This is a secular publication. 
talking about these just-so stories. It says, evolutionists have physics envy. They tell the public that the science behind evolution is the same science that sent people to the moon and cures diseases. It's not. The science behind evolution is not empirical, but forensic. It's not that observational science that we can do in the laboratory, we can repeat our experiments over and over and over, and everyone can see it. It's what we call forensic science, doing some investigations now to guess about something that happened in the past when we weren't around to see it. Because evolution took place in history, its scientific investigations are after the fact. No testing, no observations, no repeatability, no falsification, nothing at all like physics. I think this is what the public discerns, that evolution is just a bunch of just-so stories disguised as legitimate science. This has been my experience now for 33 years. There are a lot of stories, but no real science to back it up. For example, we talked about the Big Bang. They say it just so happened 13.8 billion years ago, there was this massive somewhat of an explosion, more of an expansion, that created the universe. I give a lot more details in other talks but for the time we have, I have to jump to the end of this one, quoting Leon Letterman. He's a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. He said, when you read or hear anything about the birth of the universe, somebody's making it up. <laughs> He's not saying they're lying to everyone. He's saying they're making it up. They don't know. They weren't there like, well, maybe this happened, and there is a quantum fluctuation in a vacuum. and it, They're just they're guessing, basically, making things up. And when you really look at the science, it doesn't match up at all. In fact, it's anti-science. Then we have just so stories about the origin of life. It just so happened 3.8 billion years ago, dead chemicals actually came together just right to become alive, and then they could reproduce themselves. I love that story. There's no real science behind this. I go into a lot more detail on this in one of my other talks, but jumping to the end again for now, Ken Nielsen from USC said, nobody understands the origin of life. If they say they do, they're probably trying to fool you. This is one of the biggest problems I have, figuring out how did life even get started. It's so much of a problem, most evolutionists will say it's not a problem. What does that mean? Well, it's not our problem. We don't work with that. We just work with how one creature changes into another one. But you got to get it started. Your worldview has to account for how life even got started. It's such a mess that they don't even want to really talk about it much. Again, more detail in a different talk here. Then there are just those stories about the complexity of living things. All living things are very, very, very complex, but they say it just happened naturally on its own. It's interesting, a typical human adult has about 100 trillion cells in their body, and each one of those cells is more complex than the space shuttle. In fact, in a baby from conception to birth, the baby adds about 15,000 of these cells to its body every minute, and each one of those cells is more complex than the space shuttle. Inside the nucleus of the cells, that's where the DNA is. DNA is like a very, 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 very complex blueprint with lots and lots and lots and lots of information on it. The storage capacity of DNA is phenomenal. If you had just a pinhead amount of your own DNA and could write it out in book form, it would fill enough books to stack from the Earth to the moon 500 times. That's about 240,000 miles from the Earth to the moon. Just a pinhead amount of your DNA would span that distance 500 times. But you know what? Yeah, it's just an accident. It's just what nature does. You know what? The public school systems and state universities will take your tax dollars and mine. They'll teach your kids and mine and your grandchildren. They're nothing but an accident. Your kids walk away from their faith. They thank you very much. We're kind of paying them to help our kids walk away from their faith. Now, you know why our kids are really walking away. It's because every single teacher 
in the public school system and state university, they're evil, rotten, nasty liars. I'm glad you're laughing, because I don't mean that at all. I think the vast majority of teachers and professors are very nice people, and they're not trying to lie to anybody. Maybe someone somewhere. Most of them are not. They're simply teaching the only thing they've ever heard. They grew up in the public school system. They learned all about evolution. It fascinated them. And they graduated, and they said, I'm going to go to college. You know, I want to be a teacher. Oh, and I love my biology teacher, and I like biology. I'm going to be a biology teacher. They go to college. They get a degree. They learn more about evolution. They go back to high school, open up the book. There's evolution. That's what they teach. They're not trying to lie. Unfortunately, a lot of things that are being taught are not true, but they don't even know that. So we need to take it easy you know, on, on these teachers. They're generally doing the best they can. So I wouldn't put so much of the blame on them. You know whose fault it is that our kids are walking away? See, it's Pastor Kelly's fault. Because <laughs> what happens is your kids get kind of messed up, so you've got to bring them to church, and he's supposed to fix them. And then they go home, and somehow they get messed up again, so you've got to bring them back again for another booster shot. Wrong. <laughs> It's not his fault. In fact, you're very fortunate to have a pastor who takes a strong stand on the authority of God's Word. It's largely our responsibility as parents to be mentoring our children. God doesn't say, you know what, if you give a chance, you know, I don't know, maybe talk to your kids about some of this. No, he commands us. That doesn't mean set them down and give them a lecture. I always say, been there, done that. It doesn't work. I'm a lecturer. So when it's Devotional time, sit the kids down, give them a little lecture. This won't be long. If you could just sit still for five minutes, we'll get through this. This is not effective. What it means is they come home from school and they bring something up that's kind of startling, and then you ask them questions. What do you think about that? My son brought something up one day, and instead of me giving him a lecture and giving him the answers, I just said, what do you think about that? He goes, "I, I don't know what to think. I said, think the Bible says anything about that topic? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, let's take a look at it. So we just kind of looked into it. And then another time, and another time with our daughter. And so you just do that you know, more and more as you go along. And, and our kids, who were empty nesters, they just moved out this summer. And I'm finally getting to a place where I'm getting good at it. So I wanted them to come back home again for a while so I can practice. You know, um, It's not easy. But just do what you can when you can. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. So just pray about that and, and make it a part of your lives. It doesn't have to be this mini lecture thing that you segment out. Okay, now we're done with that. Just this part of a, part of another talk. Just those stories again. We have just those stories about the variety of life, the millions of species that are on the planet today. How many of you have ever heard of the peppered moth? A few of you have. This is one of the best evidences for evolution, and this is how it goes. We have a tree trunk up there with a fungal growth on it called lichens. There's two moths up there. The one in the rectangle is lighter colored. It blends in with the fungal growth on there. So the birds are flying over and they're hungry. They are swooping down and they are picking off the dark colored moths left and right because they're easier to see. So after a while, we don't have very many dark colored moths left because most of them are being eaten. But we have a lot of light colored moths. Then the industrial revolution occurs. Fungal growth dies off the trees and now the dark ones blend in very well but the light ones stick out like a sore thumb. The birds are flying over, they're still hungry, they're swooping down, they're picking off the light-colored moths. So now we have very few light-colored moths, but a lot of dark-colored moths. There's proof of evolution. Now, if you don't quite get that, you're in good company, because when I first heard this, I didn't get it either. I thought, wait a minute, initially we had light and dark-colored moths. Afterwards, we had light and dark-colored moths. And it's not like a light-colored moth evolved into a dark-colored moth, and even if it did, it's still just a moth. 
But the most interesting thing about this is it never really even happened. Scientists took some dead moths, glued them to the trees, took pictures of it, put it in textbooks, and told the story. And it's still in many textbooks today. Our kids came home from freshman biology in high school and freshman biology in college and said, hey, Dad, guess what they're talking about in school today? The peppered moth. So I gave them a link to an article. I said, here, take this to your teacher and your professor. I said, don't argue with them. Don't be disrespectful in any way. Just say, hey, you brought this up in class the other day, and I found this information. I don't know if it's something you know about yet. Just give it to them because they probably don't know. I guarantee you they don't know. They probably wouldn't be teaching that. So, unfortunately, a lot of things that are being taught are not correct, but again, the teachers and professors don't know, and that's just one example. Then we have just those stories about the origin of mankind. So again, this is a whole other talk. Uh, I don't have time for all the details other than they have changed their story over and over, and they're constantly refuting each other's versions of you know, which came first and how old was it, what did it evolve into, and okay, this one's discredited, doesn't count anymore, but I, I guess it's okay because we got this one now. This, this proves it all. And then this one falls by the wayside, well, that's okay because we got this one. It just keeps changing and changing. You don't have evidence from the fossil record as much as they tell you they do. And genetically, it is a nightmare, a nightmare for them to transform an ape-like creature into a human being. Again, that's part of another talk as well. Lastly, in my mind, we have just those stories with the concept of millions and billions of years. And this one's a lot more controversial, even within the church. I know a lot of Christians who believe that God used the Big Bang and used the process of millions and billions of years you know, to get things here. They might not even always buy into evolution, but definitely the universe and all the layers in the earth are billions of years old because we got radiometric dating and all that. I did mention when I covered my background that I have degrees in physics and engineering and have been lecturing and researching for 33 years. So what that means is that I am right about everything I believe. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that one. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that I should have an opinion by now. <laughs> and that's all you're going to hear. You're just going to hear my opinion on this, this topic of you know, the concept of millions and, and billions of years. Now, we are not going to talk about flat earth. <laughs> I'm bringing it up to make a short point. When someone says they believe in a flat earth, which I don't, um, but if they say they believe in a flat earth, where is the focus? The focus is on the shape of the earth. Is it flat or is it spherical? Uh, and I did find one funny thing. You may have seen this already, but this, this is my kind of humor um, about flat earth. It says, the only thing that flat earthers fear is sphere itself. <laughs> thought, That's clever. I mean, you got to laugh at that. Even if you believe in a flat earth here today, it's funny. <laughs> um, but the point is, when the topic comes up, the focus is on the shape of the earth. Okay, similarly... If someone says they're a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist, where is the focus? The focus is on the age of the earth. Is it old? Is it young? I don't care how old it is, personally. I really don't. I have an opinion, but it's not because one age is more spiritual than the other or whatever. The point is death. This is why young or old matters. It's how each of these views, whether you believe it's young or old, how these views handle the origin of death. There's death here today, that's a fact. How did it get here? And so this is how it translates. You know, when, when the age of the earth comes up, it's a can of worms for a lot of people, and I, I expect people to think that I'm just a nut job, you know, for not believing in billions of years. I, I get that. 
Not because of anything they really know, but just that's what they've been taught from kindergarten and up. Millions of years, dinosaurs and radiometric dating and all that. I totally understand that. If I had a chance to share a few things with them, I'm not saying they'd instantly change their mind, but I guarantee you they'd say, you know what, I didn't really know any of that. I guess I can kind of see why you're leaning that way. Um, but here's where why the age thing even matters. It's we all have a question to answer. And it's related to this. It is a fact that we have all the layers in the earth. We've already talked about that. Those layers are there. No one denies that. These layers are literally filled with billions and billions and billions of fossils. We call it the fossil record. That's just a fact. It's also a fact that fossils represent death, disease, pain, suffering, because they're animals that were living and died and got buried. So these layers represent death, disease, pain, and suffering. Just facts. Everyone knows that. No one disagrees with that. The question is this, how did this happen? Those layers filled with fossils, how did they get there? If you tend to say, well, that's just natural history, that's what they tell us, there was a big bang and the earth formed 4.6 billion years ago and then all these layers accumulated over hundreds of millions of years, that's natural earth history and that's how God did it because he's all powerful and we don't have to deny anything they're saying, we can accept all that. Okay, if, if that's your view and many people have that view, there's a problem with that because then you'd say, after all that was done, then God plants a garden on top of all the layers and puts Adam and Eve in it. That means God is responsible for the fossil record, the death, disease, pain, and suffering. All that happened before Adam was even on the planet. It's not, it's not Adam's fault that death is here. But on the other hand, if you say, well, you think those layers were deposited catastrophically during a worldwide flood, that makes man responsible for death. Romans 5.12 says it was by Adam's sin that brought death into the world. And then about 1,600 years later after that, things got so bad, God kind of says, you know what, this is, this is nuts. I'm, I'm wiping them out. I'm sending a flood in judgment to this earth. And then the flood comes and lays down all those layers catastrophically. That means man is responsible. That's why Jesus Christ had to come and die on a cross, because man is responsible. But if God's responsible, then what did Jesus do? have himself tortured and then die on a cross when it's not, not even our fault? It, it, it just doesn't even make any sense. So when you're looking at all these layers, is it just a snapshot of God's process of creation? Oh, that's just how he created the earth over hundreds of millions of years and creatures are living and dying and eating each other and disease and all that. Or is this really a very graphic picture of God's judgment on sin? That's how bad it is that God judged this earth with a flood, just like he said in Genesis 6 through 8. You have to answer that question. I can't tell you what you have to believe, but this is one reason why I believe in a literal six-day creation. When you look at Scripture, I just am convinced more than ever that God did create in six literal days, and it couldn't have been millions or billions of years ago. I also am convinced scientifically, which is part of a whole other talk, and I'll just give you just scratching the surface on this. Here are the layers in the earth again. It's a fact, layers in the earth. Sometimes we find fossils that go up through multiple layers. They're called fossils. These are fossils of trees going up through multiple layers. Why is this an issue? Well, here's why it's an issue for the idea of millions of years. Let's say this layer down there was laid down 200 million years ago, and then that tree started growing in that layer. And then apparently it stood there for millions of years as it's waiting for the other layers to eventually come and bury it. It's physically impossible. The tree would have rotted away long before those other layers got there. And take a look at the bottoms of these trees. They're missing something. We like to call them root systems. These trees weren't growing there. They were growing somewhere else, catastrophically uprooted, torn away from their root systems, and rapidly redeposited 
in a single catastrophic event like the flood. Sometimes we find these trees laying sideways or upside down. They weren't growing there. <laughs> Here's an actual photograph of a polystrate fossil tree going up through multiple layers. Uh, we don't have time to talk about Mount St. Helens in any detail, but in 1980 when it erupted, it laid down hundreds of feet of layers in hours and days. It didn't take hundreds of thousands or millions of years. It took one relatively small volcano a very, very short period of time. And that's what we'll take a look at when we do our tour there. But then we have coal. See, now coal disproves everything I just told you. Because coal is millions of years old. It takes millions of years to form coal, right? That's what we've all been taught. No, you can form coal in a laboratory in about four hours. It doesn't take time. It just takes the right conditions. It takes organic material. Heat, pressure, and water. That's exactly what the flood would have provided. The flood would have buried all the vegetation on the earth under all those layers that we see. That would cause a lot of pressure, which causes heat, and then you got all the water from the flood. Those layers of vegetation would have turned into coal seams in a very short period of time, maybe a few hundred years tops. It wouldn't take millions of years. And we have C14, that's carbon-14. You have lectures on carbon-14 dating, keeping it simple and short for this morning. Carbon-14 decays away fairly quickly, compared to other elements, it would only take a few tens of thousands of years for all of it to be gone. Well, if coal is supposed to be 100 to 200 million years old, it shouldn't have any carbon-14 in it. We have yet to find a single piece of coal on this planet that doesn't still have carbon-14 in it, telling us that the coal could only be a few thousand years old. It can't be millions of years old. We even find carbon-14 in diamonds. Diamonds are supposed to be at least a billion years old, and there's still carbon-14 in them. It's fascinating. Again, part of a whole other talk. But wrapping this up, Psalm 119, 160 says, Thy word is true, starting right after the Genesis creation account. <laughs> it doesn't say that. <laughs> this is what it actually says. Thy word is true from the beginning. Genesis is the beginning of God's word. There, there was a sermon in which the pastor told the congregation that Genesis doesn't mean what it says because we've discovered all this stuff about science and we know better now. Afterwards, a nine-year-old girl asked her mom, if Genesis doesn't mean what it says, when does God start telling the truth? That's a good question. I've been studying for a while, and I think that verse, I found the verse that from that point on out, you can trust it, Genesis 1.1. From that point to the end, you can trust everything that it says, and the more we look at science, the more it backs that up. It's very, very encouraging. So the talk I just gave was not really about creation and evolution. It was about the authority of God's word. Can we trust it or not? Do we trust it or not? Very important. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the question, how do we know that this book was actually written by God? There's a lot of religious books out there claiming to be written by God. Why do we say, oh, this is the only one? Do we just have faith? If we do, it's just blind, and there's no reason anyone else should believe it. So I would highly, highly encourage you, please do not come back tonight alone. <laughs> Bring somebody. Bring someone who has questions. The skeptics that I meet, every single one of them, super smart, and they have great questions. They have questions that I'd be asking if I were them, and they want answers, and they run into a lot of other Christians, and they almost never get answers. So I'm, I'm always honored when someone comes who's checking it out, because I don't know a lot of Christians who go to atheist meetings or anything like that. So come back tonight, six o'clock, Bring someone who's got questions, and we'll be looking at some awesome evidence from science, actually, that this book is not just another religious book penned by a bunch of ignorant goat herders. It's the inspired word of God from, from cover to cover.
just before I close in a quick word of prayer, I'm going to highlight the resources we brought along so you know there's a lot of great resources out there from many ministries, great stuff. Just quickly tell you what we brought along. We've got a number of free things. We have a free email newsletter. It comes out once a month. You'll see our speaking schedule on it. It usually has a really interesting question that gets you to think deeper, like, should you take the Bible literally? And skeptics say, well, you're a Christian. You take the Bible literally. They say, no, I don't. <laughs> like, what? No, I don't take it literally. Of course not. And they're just shocked, and you guys are shocked probably. I don't take the Bible literally. I take it contextually. The portions that are written as literal history, I take literally. The portions that are written as poetry, I take as poetry. When it says that God covers us with his wings, I don't think he's a chicken and has feathers. It's poetic language saying that God protects us. When it says that God created everything in six days, it's written as literal historical Hebrew narrative. I take that literally. So I take the Bible contextually, and I take it seriously, and I believe the whole thing, but I would never say I take it literally because then the skeptic can easily pull out all these examples. Of, well, okay, I don't take that literally. Okay, well, I don't take that. So just questions like that will help you, you know, strengthen your faith and understand your faith better. And we have a free live stream broadcast, and we do roughly once a month to take the summers off. The next one's going to be October 16th. It'll be 5.30 and 7.30 Pacific time we do that so we can reach the East Coast as well. To see it, all you have to do is go to our website, thestartingpointproject.com. You don't have to install any software. You don't have to sign up for anything. You just pull up the website. So the website comes up. You will see me speaking for about 30 minutes. And while I'm speaking, you can actually type in a question and hit the submit button. We get it instantly. When I'm done speaking, my producer puts the questions up on the screen, and then I just spend 30 minutes answering the questions. It's really powerful. It's free. You can also go to that same page and scroll down just a little bit, and you can click on archive, and you'll see all the past episodes that you can just watch on your own that are recorded there. We have a conference special we put together, a one of everything that we have. I have 10 DVDs that I produced, similar to what you've just seen here, really easy to understand, uh, seven pocket-sized booklets, and then the book that I wrote, I've been told by some of the world's leading scientists, I think it's the best overview that's out there. I was honored to hear that. So that's special. If we are short of anything, and we've, we've already sold quite a bit just the first service, so if we run out of something, we will just, we have an order form, we'll just ship the rest to you. You can purchase it uh, today, so that way you don't have to pay any shipping costs. Everything's available on our website, but if you get it today, then you don't have to pay shipping costs. Also mentioned, I've been speaking for 33 years, I've never charged a penny and never will. The main way our ministry works is through our monthly supporters. But I always emphasize with people, I think your first and foremost financial priority is to your local church here. Above and beyond that, if God puts it up, this is an important message, and you want to become a monthly supporter, we want to give you a free set of DVDs and a free copy of my book, not just as a thank you, but as a great set of resources to strengthen your faith, help you better mentor your own children and grandchildren, and then better reach out with the gospel message to those around you. So we're a nonprofit, so it's tax deductible. If you're interested, you can see Amy at the table afterwards. And again, since we don't charge anything, if you have a connection, you want me to speak somewhere else, maybe you used to live in Florida or you have an uncle who's a pastor somewhere, whatever the connection is, you can fill out our form. It either says engagement request or help us get connected. That form is on our table. Just fill it out, turn it into us before you leave, and we can work with you to get connected wherever you have in mind. I already mentioned Grand Canyon Tour, May 28th next year. Uh, grab a flyer or go to our website to get all the information and sign up. Mount St. Helens, uh, those are the dates there. So, again, with that, I hope that this was encouraging to you. Didn't expect you to remember all the details. That's not what it's about. I wanted you to drink from a fire hose, walking out saying, yeah, I'm not going to remember all those details, but boy, do I, I, I know that I can trust God's word. 
And you want to do that so you can go out and win arguments with people and beat them over the head. No. You want to do that so you can be confident in your faith when you're sharing the gospel message with people very graciously. This is a spiritual issue we're dealing with, and we want to be Christ-like and gracious and patient with everyone that we're dealing with. Don't start out about creation and evolution. Share the gospel message. If they say, well, I, I don't believe that whole Jesus thing because the Bible's wrong in Genesis, then you might have to address some of those questions. But don't just make it argumentative right from the beginning. Share the gospel message and every opportunity that you have. So I will close in a quick word of prayer. I look forward to seeing you in the lobby and then back here tonight at 6 o'clock. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that you've given us to take a look at the authority of your word. I pray for each person here this morning, for those who already know you and have that personal relationship with Christ, I pray that their faith would be greatly strengthened so that they have opportunities to, again, boldly, confidently proclaim the gospel message. And then anyone here this morning, God, who isn't there yet, is just checking things out. I'm honored that they're here, and I pray, though, that today would be the day that they would place their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and the authority of your word. And I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.